So one thing I want to do first is, is as we go into Mark, um, we are going to be getting into it and kind of digging deep, but I want to kind of approach the who, wit, who, what, when, where, why of Mark. So the who is a little Mark doesn't name himself. Who do you guys think wrote the book? John. No, not John. Um, Mark. Mark is referred to as John Mark. He's also considered the nephew of Barnabas. We can read about that in the book of Acts. Scholars believe that Peter was actually a mentor of Mark and that he kind of poured into him and that his main source was through Peter. Some have actually gone so far as to call this the gospel of Peter. Bradley's message last week, he, he really spoke to me. I got, had the chance to listen to it. I wasn't here last week, but I listened to it online a, a couple times. And one thing he said was, older men disciple younger men, older women disciple younger women. And I really enjoyed that portion where he talks about that because here we see Peter who had mentored and possibly pour, and poured into Mark. And so the what of Mark, what about Mark? Mark is about action. If you read Mark, you'll see that it's like a Chuck Norris movie on steroids. I mean, it's like Delta Force missing in action and just fast-forwarding through the first 20 minutes and just getting right to the blow-up scenes. The reason I say that is because Mark, if you read it, it's very fast-paced, super fast. It's like a a, a good action movie. You know, it moves fast-paced. As a matter of fact, the word immediately is mentioned over 40 times. He focuses on Jesus' actions rather than his words. If you look at Mark, you'll notice that you don't see the, the genealogy of Christ. You don't see the birth of Christ. He skips and fast forwards right through that. It's very different than Mark's or Matthew's version or Luke's version where they kind of set you up. Mark just jumps right into the baptism of Christ. So we see the baptism. We see the temptation of Christ. In Mark chapter 12, or excuse me, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, it says this. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And that's the temptation of Christ. Way different than Matthew's version of that, right? Where in Matthew's version, you see a full conversation between Satan and Jesus, and and you see all this stuff happening. You see Jesus quoting scripture. You see this full conversation. Here, you just get a quick two verses, and he's done. So that's what I'm talking about. Mark just kind of flies through everything uh, very fast. Mark continues his account by talking about Jesus' ministry. The disciples are chosen. Jesus preaches and heals many, and that's all in chapter one. Again, fast-paced. You know, there have been some scholars that have kind of complained about Mark, that have said that it's too short, it's too abbreviated. Some even go as far as saying it's mysterious and not very clear. Mark's often overshadowed by Matthew, Luke, and John, kind of like the little gospel, the little brother, but couldn't be further from the truth. And when we get to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see this verse, and Judd read it earlier, but it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that was the who, the what, the when. Mark's er probably the earliest and shortest gospel written around 70 AD. The where, the early church tradition points to Mark, that Mark was written in Rome and written to Gentile readers. And the why, why was this book written? Why was Mark written? Because he wanted to give an accurate account of the life of Jesus. 
But ultimately, I believe, like every book in this Bible, it's ultimately to point us to Christ, that we need a Savior, that we need a loving God to come and rescue us. And that's what we see. So this morning, I want to go through these three sections. I want to go through Mark and highlight the nuggets, or as I like to say, nuggets. Sounds a little more... uh, (laughs) Fancy. So I'll point at the new J's of these three sections. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, you could turn there. That's going to kind of be our, our, our passage that we look at. In the first 10 chapters, we see the focus being on Christ serving those around him. We see, we read, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. He's teaching the multitudes. Christ is calling the disciples. He's spending time with the disciples. He's performing miracles. He's healing the sick, healing the blind, healing the deaf, healing those with leprosy, healing those who are paralytic, casting out unclean spirits. He even calms the storms. He feeds the thousands. And he sends the disciples two by two with authority. And we see Jesus serving from the very beginning here. And I believe this is a picture of what our lives should be like, right? I mean, our goal as Christians is to be like Christ. And so we see Christ here serving. That should be our, our example. So I'd like to highlight chapter 8, verse 1 through 10. A great example of how we can live our lives. He says this. In those days when again, and just make a mental note of that, again. We'll get back to it. A great crowd had gathered. And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I'm going to pause real quick. First, he called his disciples. You know, Jesus called his disciples here, and we we see this story. Maybe you've read it before, but I want to kind of break it down. And much like his disciples who responded to his invitation, we have responded to his invitation. If you're here and you're, you're saying, I'm a follower of Christ, then by default, you are a disciple of Christ. And so... As a result, you get to serve. We get to serve. We're not perfect. Husbands, wives, co-workers, friends, we aren't perfect. We're not here because we've achieved a great status and we've figured it all out. But we are sinners trying to get through it. And by God's grace, he, he forgives us. You know, salvation, when you received Christ, wasn't a decision you made and 2014 or 2010 or 1997 and now you're good or or 83 or or like Clyde 1921 my father-in-law you know it wasn't a decision you made back then had to had to throw that in there um but when you made that decision it's a daily decision to follow Christ second Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 says this therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner, or of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We shouldn't be ashamed of what we stand for. Today's culture, we try to make the gospel safe. Well, the gospel isn't a safe, fun message. It's very offensive. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading, you see that Christ ultimately died because of this message that he brought. When Paul wrote this, strangely enough, he was actually telling the people to follow a man who was crucified and that he called him Savior. 
He saved us and he called us. As a disciple, we're to grow daily. So Mark continues in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 10. He says this, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Time out again. Compassion. Christ is moved by compassion here. Christ didn't feel sad for them, but he felt compassion for them. Now, compassion is different from feeling, feeling sad. You know, we've all been up late at night watching TV, and you see the pictures of, of the kids in other countries who are starving, and you feel sad for them. But compassion would lead you to act on it. A lot of times, let's be honest, you change the channel. You're like, I can't deal with that. Oh, I'd rather not watch that. There's a difference between feeling sad for someone and feeling compassion. You know, in El Salvador, uh, back in 2003, I believe it was, I, I went on a missions trip with my college and a bunch of college kids, and it was after the big earthquake in, in El Salvador. And I remember we were out eating lunch, and uh, we had these things called pupusas. They're like uh, tacos, but they're kind of two tortillas, and inside there's meat or beans and all this. It's an Salvadorian dish. They're great. And we're sitting there, and these little kids who are five or six years old come up to us, and, and they're like, can I have food? Can, I, can you please give me money for food? And the pastor was said, don't give them money. You can buy them food, but don't give them money. So we said, hey, we'll, let's, we'll buy you food. And they're like, no, we don't want food. We just want money. We don't want pupusas. We want, we want money. And the pastor said, don't, don't give them money. So being there, we, we had to listen to him. And, and we finished eating. We, we, the, the store owners or the restaurant owners kicked him out. But the kids were waiting for us outside the door. So we start walking about a mile to our, our car. And the whole way, the kids are next to us. Please give us money. Skinny little kids, big bellies, just hungry, saying, please give us money. The pastor said, don't give them money. Buy them food. Don't give them money. And so when we got back to the car, that we asked him why. And he goes, because these kids have the money for food, but they don't spend it on food. They spend it on drugs. They'll buy glue, they'll buy paint, they sniff that, they stick them in bags, and that's what they do. I felt sad for them, but I didn't feel, and I felt compassion for them, but the, the compassion that I felt didn't cause me to move to El Salvador. The missionary is an American missionary. He got married, and, and they moved there. They've been there for 20 plus years, and it was, it was when he had gone and he saw that, that he had such compassion that he said, I have to do something. I have to move here. I have to do it. His wife actually didn't want to go, but she said, I'll give it a year. And, and after a year, it became two and 20, and she's like, I couldn't imagine not being here. Compassion moves us to act. You know, here in our valley, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have family, we have people that we work with that maybe don't know the Lord. And we can easily say, oh, man, I feel so sad for them. They're not going they don't know the Lord, but do we feel compassion for them? Are we moved to a point where we, we're going to pray for them and we're going to seek the Lord for them? Man, I got to be honest, there's a lot of times that I don't. I feel sad for them. And I have to pray and a reminder, man, God, I just need your heart. I need to be moved by compassion. You know, verse 3 continues and he says this, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So here Jesus is kind of in a predicament, right? Not really because he's the son of God. He knows all. And, and, and he's kind of in a situation where he's like, you know what? This is going to be a good teachable moment. So he calls his disciples. Hey, guys, come over here. What do we do? 
They're hungry. They live far away. They've been with me for three days. What do we do? I could just picture them in a circle, huddled up. All right, let's see. You would think that maybe one of the disciples will say, hey, 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 Jesus, remember, remember back a couple chapters ago, you, you fed the 5,000? Remember that? Because remember, in, in those days, the city market wasn't around, so they couldn't do that. You would think that one of them would say, man, you've done it before. Man, this is Team JC. We got this. Ain't no thing but a chicken wing, right? <laughs> but he didn't. In chapter 6, we see the story, two chapters before this, we see that there was a little boy with five loaves and two fish. He fed 5,000. But now we read that they didn't answer that way. And we can easily criticize them and say, be like, man, the disciples, like, they were with Jesus. They followed Jesus. They saw miracles. Surely they would have remembered that two chapters ago, Jesus fed 5,000 people with, with, with five loaves of bread and two fish. But man, think about how many times in our lives, I know I can remember so many times that, that God's done something. A week or two go by, and then I'm in a different situation. Like, clearly, Lord, you can't help me with this one. And then some, the Lord comes through, and then we forget. Kind of like the Israelites, right? Verse 4 goes and says, And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. So we talked about being called. Here the disciples were called. We talked about having compassion. The third thing I want to point out in this passage here is, is obedience. If you go back to chapter 6, you'll see that Jesus asked the crowd, and we see a little boy who said, hey, I've got this. Now Jesus doesn't do that. Now he goes to the disciples. And this time he asked the disciples, what do you have? Remember, city market's not around about, it's not two roundabouts over and head over the bridge and there you are. They were three days away's walk from wherever they lived. They probably had just enough food for themselves. So, here he says in verse 6, And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. So Jesus had asked them how much they had. Imagine being stranded on an island. You got just enough food for yourself. And there's other people. You brought your food and Jesus says, hey, I'm going to need that food. Your first thought is, no way. Man, this is the only food we have. They should have brought their food. They knew they were coming out here. But it required obedience. And in verse 6, he says, give them to his disciples. He gave them, and they gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So the fourth thing is they just did this. They just served. It wasn't the most elaborate ministry. It wasn't the greatest thing that they had probably experienced. Jesus did what he did. He did the miracle. And he said, now I just need you to go pass out the food. So they, they are, the disciples of Christ, handing out food. They just did it. The job had to get done. You know, serving Christ sometimes means just filling in when there's a void. And we talked about this this morning at, uh, at, the, at the training. You know, 
there's voids here at Eagle Bible that we need filled. Now, the heart isn't to just throw anyone off, fine, I'll be the greeter ministry and, hey, welcome to Eagle Bible, get in here. I'm serving the Lord. Or, hey, kids, I'm going to help with the kids' ministry. Uh, Hey, kids, you want to cry? Go home. It's not that. But there is a time where it's just filling in areas that we need to fill in. Verse 7 says, And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat and his disciples, with his disciples, and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Seven baskets, which means there was more leftovers than when they started. It's pretty cool. Uh, miracle. So what can we gather from this story as we read it? What can we, what can we use in this story and, and, and apply to our lives? You know, I believe it's for us to serve, we have to have those four things that, that Christ illustrated there. Know we're called. Man, if you're called, you're a disciple. And as disciples, we're called to serve. Two is serve with compassion. If you don't have compassion, pray. See, God, give me your heart. Three is serve obediently. And finally, the fourth one is sometimes just filling the need. Having someone over for dinner, inviting them. So that was the service of Christ. Second second portion of this is the sacrifice of Christ. We see that in chapters 10, verse 46 through 15, verse 47. In these chapters, we read the triumphal entry, Jesus clears the temple, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus' return, Jesus anointed at Bethany, the Lord's Supper, Jesus prays in Gethsemane, Judas betrays Jesus, Jesus is arrested, Jesus before the council, Peter denies Jesus three times, the crucifixion, the death, and ultimately the burial. That's all within those five chapters. Like I said, it's, it's fast-paced. Chuck Norris. Finally, the dissection ends with Jesus being buried in the tomb. So we see in this section that also Jesus, his authority is questioned constantly by teachers, by lawyers, by Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They wanted to trick Jesus so they could legally charge him with something. They wanted to arrest him. Ultimately, they wanted to kill him. You think that we as a society have gotten to the point where Christians are being questioned about certain social issues? That if it's not answered the the right way or a certain way, that we're viewed as haters, as, as people who don't love? I think we're getting there. Maybe we're there. We see here the, the sacrifice of Jesus throughout this section. You know, we're called to sacrifice as followers of Christ. If you turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31, it says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And as Christians, we're to sacrifice. It doesn't mean you pack up everything and you sell everything and you go to some third world country and, and that's your sacrifice and you sell, give everything up. Maybe it does for you, but that's not what sacrifice means. Here he says, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So the bottom line is, if we're doing this with our all, then sacrifice will be a result. You know, some, some years ago, about six years ago, I decided to do a sprint triathlon, a short one, and I wanted to do a relay. And I said, well, I swam through high school. I, I wore Speedos with the best of them. You know, I, uh, I was decent. It was California, Northern Cal, water polo is huge, swimming's huge. Um, ironically, when I met Chris Beal, I, I played his brother in high school in water polo. Weird, and we won. So, um, just, but I remember, uh, man, it was, it was Nor- Northern Cal is big time water polo. Had friends who went to the national championships, who, who won for UCLA, friends who went to the Olympics. Um, I swam, and, and I remember doing this relay and being like, oh, I got this. Training, not for me. You know, I, 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 I just was going to do it. I borrowed a wetsuit, and uh, it's open water swimming, Avon, and I jump in, I start swimming, and something happens. Like, I can't breathe. And this is like pathetic. I'm like, man, I'm a swimmer. What am I doing? And I'm like doggy pedaling. And I'm like, this is, this is unbelievable. I'm on a relay and I'm going to lose it for us. And so I'm swimming. Finally, I finish. And I'm sure God was laughing. Like, that's what you get. Well, the second year I had a, a, a better plan. Uh, this relay thing it messed me up. I'm going to go solo. So borrow another <laughs> wetsuit. Borrow another wetsuit. And uh, this time, two minutes before the race, I have a, a, I devise a plan. Well, last year, I, I couldn't breathe because the wetsuit was too tight because I'm so buff. So this year, I'm going to unzip my wetsuit so that I can move. This sounds logical in my head like two minutes before. So I jump in, start swimming, and it starts to fill with water. And it gets more and more and heavier and heavier, and I kind of start sinking. And I'm like doggy pedaling, and the water's cold, and now I'm cold, and I'm kind of getting like, <gasps> you know, hypothermic, and, and this little lady passes me, she's like, are you okay? <laughs> I thought like saying, lady, this is part of the plan, like, <laughs> beat it. Um, but man, I learned two things. One, I learned I'll never do a triathlon without training, and two, I will never borrow another wetsuit. I'm buying my own. But the reality is this, that I was doomed from the very beginning because I didn't train. I didn't put any effort. I didn't run. I didn't even stretch before. I was doomed from the very beginning. It's my fault and it's all on me. And I was okay with that. And I wonder if there's some here who view sacrifice that way. Ah, I'm just not going to sacrifice all. That's too much. But you know, I'm okay with that. That's too much effort. I finished the triathlon. We finished. No record, but we finished. Do we also view it that way? Ah, you know what? I'm not going to give my all, but you know what? At the end of my life, I'm saved. I'm going to get to heaven. The Lord's going to look at me, and I'll be with him. 
Is that our attitude? Is this how we view sacrifice in our beautiful valley, in our world? You know, we're saved and God wants so much more for us. We've got a video that I want to show you that illustrates this point. off the team, whatever, you know, just there's so much instability, so much that we don't understand, that, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was, uh, a lot of you guys know, my mom died giving birth to me, and my dad remarried, then my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine, then my dad got married again, then my dad died of cancer when I was 12, and so I'm in junior high, my mom's dead, my stepmom's dead, my dad's dead. The only close relatives I had were my, my aunt and uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight, and my uncle George shot and killed my aunt, and then stuck the gun to his own head, killed himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me, going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little worried, we get a little scared. And this is what Christians do, you know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky. And things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts. I don't, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here. And uh, I'm just going to hold on. And uh, this is what you look like. You just go, uh, this is what people do. You know what? I'm just going to have my nice little family. We're just going to... Um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids, make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm not going to let them outside because sun has bad rays. I'm going to, um, you know, just on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety of I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just, I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2%. Um, and uh, maybe serve health and nursery because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life. And then you, you go, your greatest prayer is like, God, you know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it and then just go up to heaven. And so th you want to die like this, just in your sleep. Ooh, right in the middle of a dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven and you don't even feel it. And then suddenly you wake up, you stand before the judge and you go. <laughs> Now, if, uh, could you imagine, could you imagine watching the Olympics, you know, and some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes, what is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. I, I, that's the routine that they're going to live, and then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge, and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. 
See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes. Man, this section we saw Christ sacrifice. And we're always saying, man, we want to live a life like Christ. I want to be more like Christ. And I think Francis Chan just, just illustrates it great. The sacrifice is a part of our, our lives if, we're, if we want to be true followers of Christ. It's just going to happen. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the service of Christ. We've seen the sacrifice of Christ. And now we're going to see the success of of Christ. Chapter 16, verse 1 through 20. You can actually turn to verse 4 through 8. Here we see the risen Savior right there. Boom, that's success. They thought he was defeated. People thought he was dead. People thought he was done. And Christ rises. Death couldn't contain him. And so in Mark chapter 16, verse 4 through 8, it says this. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, and he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they were out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Man, they were afraid. You know, here we see a historical event. Can you imagine seeing that? You're going to see Christ and the, two, the, the rocks rolled away and an angel appears. Mark chapter 15, verse 38 through 39 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this was he, excuse me, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. See, when we look at Mark, all of Mark builds up to that point in the previous chapter. It's the first time that someone says, truly, this is the son of God. He acknowledged it. And in 16, verse 4 through 8, we see that he has risen. So what does the resurrection in Mark chapter 16 really mean? It means this. He was who he said he was. It means that we can have assurance of our own resurrection when we accept Christ. It means that Christianity is completely different than, and unique than any other world religion. And fourth, it means that God had a plan for humanity from the very beginning, and he succeeded. You know, if you read Mark... It's fast-paced. It's a good gospel. And the thing I love about it is that it ends with us. It ends with you and with me. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says this, And he said to them, 
go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It's an invitation for us to participate in this ministry. It wasn't Jesus rose, the disciples went, that's their story. It's our story. So in Mark, we saw the service of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the success of Christ. As we close, I want to take communion. I'm going to ask Judd to come up in a bit, but the worship team, if you want to come up and just play a little. We've seen Christ's example here. You know, my prayer is that I would be more like Christ and that I would be better in these areas and, and, and that he would be the one that drives that. So we'll go ahead and close in prayer and then we'll take communion.